to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Last week, we, I think, read to one another psalms largely like they're meant to be done. This psalm is something unique. I said at this very start of this series on psalms that one of the unique things about the book is that it is inspired, like the other books of the Bible are, but it is generally inspired language of men and women of God's people back to Him as opposed to letters like Ephesians or whatever that are coming from an apostle to the church. It's more up the, um, directed to Him. This psalm is, I mean, it's, it's not even really exactly like Paul writing and saying this. this the psalmist here, Asaph, basically... It's, it's like prophecy. In other words, it's direct speech of God uh, to His people. And so I'm simply going to read this and we'll consider its message. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. 
Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And that ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. I've been trying to uh, think about a way of summarizing how I'm getting to certain psalms. And I recently said something, a person thought it was helpful, so I'm going to say it now publicly here too. I think what I'm doing to myself is as I'm using the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, and basically trying to think through a worldview. What worldview, so to speak, arises out of these psalms. And so we started by the entryway, Psalms 1 and 2, and I asked myself or answered the question, to what then do I enter? In other words, what world do I enter? And we went to Psalm 104, which is a magnificent psalm of God's creative and sustaining uh, of all of creation, His revelation in and through creation. So, that, so I entered the world, but it's his world. What special gift has God given to me? Well, I thought about Adam and Eve in the garden. It seems like the first thing they got pretty much was God's word. And so we spent time. There's references in Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. I asked the question, well, who am I? What am I in this world? And I went to Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses, and was reminded of being absolutely a dependent creature who yet can be in a relationship with the Lord. Uh, and then uh, I asked the question, well, what else characterizes this world that I am in? Who else is in this created world? And last week we realized, oh, there's a great king that rules in this world. Uh, Psalm 72 a king and his kingdom characterized by righteousness and justice and compassion. A kingdom, its duration, the king and the kingdom, therefore, its duration is eternal. Its scope, its size is universal. And there is great prosperity and blessing in that kingdom. And so now we come to tonight, and I was thinking a little further down the road, I said, well, what else is going on in this world in which I live, uh, in this creation? And one of the things is this, not everyone likes this king or submits to this king. And so he sometimes, this king also takes on the role of judge. And that's what we have here in Psalm 50. And what is interesting is that this this psalm is a, a covenant lawsuit. Uh, there's actually a technical term in, in Hebrew, short term, read. But, but that's the idea. And the prophets often did this with the people of Israel. One person, I think, rightly has said that this psalm is, you might say, the Old Testament counterpart to uh, 1 Peter 4, 17. 1 Peter 4, 17 is that verse that says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so the closing commentary there from Peter is, Therefore entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, you picked up in the reading of this, this is a, this is a lawsuit against uh, his people at the time. So we're going to go through this. It, it easily divides into three sections. The opening six verses are basically God uh, constituting his court in his courtroom. And then the middle section is one of the defendants called before him. And then there's a third section, a second character, a second type of defendant, and then a closing summation by the judge. And so uh, let's begin. So God is assembling his court in verses 1 through 6. There's a majestic opening. You can look at the titles. This That's actually three titles there in the opening line. The Mighty One, El, is, is the uh, uh, Hebrew there. God, Elohim, and then Yahweh, the Lord, the Covenant Lord, the Mighty One, you know, the Elohim is the object of, some people say, the object of religious fear in the sense of awe and reverence and worship, His greatness. And of course, the covenant Lord is, you know, this is the God who met Moses at the, at the burning bush, gave His name, and of course, delivered the people. This is the, um, the God of Israel, and therefore, of course, now we know more fully uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a universal summons. The summons goes out to all the earth, verse 1, from the rising of the sun to its setting. And it's a grand courtroom location. He comes from Zion in verse 2. Out of Zion, God shines forth. Um, He's letting his light blaze out of Zion where he sits enthroned. That was the city that he chose. It's the city which would have the temple in it. And, and repeatedly in the Psalms, Zion is referred to Jerusalem, same thing there. And so this is uh, the joy of the whole earth, Psalm 48.2 says. Make Zion the sum of all the beauty. And that's where God is and he's He's coming out in judgment with His people. The effects of the judge's presence are verse 3. Our God comes before Him as a devouring fire, a mighty tempest. Um, That devouring fire reminded us of our call to worship, doesn't it? The author of Hebrews actually speaks that way. Our God is a consuming fire. A strong relationship here to the, to the scene and the, the uh, uh, manifestations when the people of God are at uh, Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. You know, there's thunders, there's lightning, there's fire, there's earthquakes. When God is on the move like this, uh, nature uh, makes its displays. The witnesses. Every good court needs witnesses, right? Well, who, who can God call as a witness? He calls, he can't call me necessarily or, or you, so to speak. Too small a witness. 
He calls heaven and earth. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Universal significance, one person said, of God's relationship to and dealings with Israel. The vindication of his righteousness, um, of his inflexible justice uh, dealt out are clearly taught in making heaven and earth the witnesses of this courtroom. Well, who are the defendants? They are described as his people. He may judge his people. And so uh, he, he actually gives them several titles there, names. In verse 4, his people. In verse 5, my faithful ones, interestingly enough, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Uh, so we come to this conclusion here of the establishment of the court scene. And there is application here. Do you and I think that one day we may stand before the judgment seat of Christ? That will happen. We, at our Saturday morning men's meeting Bible study, I think it was Pete that mentioned the most terrible verse in the Bible, and it has been my estimation that this, this is exactly right. One of the most awesome, just, just um, uh, statements is in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven twenty three, when Jesus there there will come a time when Jesus will look at some people, people who have been close to him people who have tried to work in his name. And he gives those dreadful words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so we have, we have the judgment of God that is here. Begins at the household of God, as Peter says. Uh, but let's take a look at the first characteristic, the first type of defendant that is called forward. And this begins in verse 7. Uh, I'm, uh, several, several different titles can be used for this kind of person. Uh, I'm using that he's calling forward a ritualistic people, formal ritualism. Uh, this is going to be one of those common perpetual tendencies of Christ, now Christian people, it was certainly true for Jewish people, uh, to fall into the reliance on external worship and the neglect of the inner heart, the inner man, so to speak, as the scripture uh, things, the emotions, the 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 re, the disciplines from from the heart to give thanks to God and to trust Him. There's always a human tendency to fall into ritualism rather than to maintain a close relationship with God. Derek Kidner, a commentator on this, speaks of these people. He says they are nominally orthodox or, the other one is interesting, mechanically pious. Every Sunday, they, they're there and... Uh, then the rest of the life, who knows? But people that are 
characterized in that way. In verse 7, uh, God appeals to the relationship that He has with them as being His right to judge them because He says, this is very much covenant language. Here, oh, who are they? They are my people. You're my people. And look at how that verse ends. I am God, you're God. Isn't that the repeated language of the uh, covenant with Moses and with Abraham and, and, and with David? All of the covenants. That if you wanted to condense the promises of the covenant down to, uh, you know, its real essence, it is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's exactly what is said here. And it is the basis that gives him the right to judge. Uh, so, verses then, uh, that's verses 7 and 8. Uh, by the way, some people have, when they read verse 8, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke, etc., sometimes they think that God was not interested in, in the people practicing sacrificial worship. No, that's not true. He, he commanded it. But the point was, it was never to be done just, just to be doing something, just as, as ritual. Verses 9 through 13 are directed against the folly of believing that in sacrifice itself, God delighted. That God simply delighted in me performing certain actions. And the rationale here is the people were devoted to offering sacrifices but you get the sense that they thought that they were doing something good for God. In other words, to be more precise, you get the sense that they thought they were um, contributing to maybe God's blessedness or, or to say more crudely, uh, putting God in their debt. Look, Lord, I'm bringing you a cow. Look, I'm bringing you... Uh, a sheep, a lamb, look, look at what I'm doing. Uh, surely you have blessed me. The idea of trying to build credit with God. And that's, that's what lays behind, you know, there's some, uh, some favorite words here, verse, that great verse, the cattle on a thousand hills. The point of this, the fact that the, and the repetition of in verse 10, Every beast of the forest is mine. Verse 11, all the animals in the field are mine. Uh, the world in its fullness are mine. In other words, the sheep you're bringing was mine already. You haven't given me anything. One person writing uh, one of my favorite Authors Motier says the people's devotion to offering sacrifices was aimed at doing God a favor. The direction of their religion was from man to God, a religion of brownie points, of getting into God's good books, of human meritorious works. There is this sense in the ritualist of his pride. Oh, I have done well this Sunday by bringing these things and attending and doing whatever. Whereas real worship humbles us before God. 
Montgomery Boyce says, to suppose that our worship contributes anything to God or meets a need in God is the height of absurdity. The cure to such thinking is this good dose of spiritual reality. God does not need anything from us. Now we might, we, we could get into some nuance there. He desires certain things, but God does not need. He is completely self-sustaining. He is eternal life itself. So true religion then, as it gets summed up here very well, he says in verse 14 and 15, here's, here's what I'm looking for. Where, where is your thankful heart? Sincere, true, thankful heart. Are you doing what you said you were going to do with that thankful heart and in trust? Hey, look at this. Are you calling upon me? What is calling upon me? It's prayer. Are you praying to me sincerely in faith in your day of trouble? And look at this to these people. I will deliver such a one. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And so what is true religion but this thankful heart for what God has done, the fulfilling of vows, prayer. Um, we honor God. That's an interesting statement. You shall glorify me. In other words, how am I glorifying God? I can glorify God by praying to Him. Praying means I can't do certain things and you are my only Help. It is trusting in Him. It is relying on Him. It is coming to Him as refuge, as as um, as uh, fortress, as our citadel, as our deliverer, as our provider. And then, when we receive our answers, when He delivers, we respond. How we say thank you, and we seek to serve. All sacrifices are God's before they are offered and do not become any more His by being offered. He neither needs nor can partake of material substance. But here's what He's after. Thankful love, trust, and obedience. They are, you might say, the food of God. Sacrifices acceptable and well-pleasing to Him. Keep in mind, again, the author of Hebrews, I think, gets this. Hebrews 13, the author uses sacrificial language, verses 15 and 16. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There you go. Well, let's look at the second defendant who, who comes up. That was, the, that was the one who made the mistake that true religion is not about ritual. It's about relationship, about being in relationship, a loving relationship with your heavenly Father. So now 
Uh, and by the way, those people may be saved. I'm not sure. I, didn't, I couldn't come to a definite conclusion about that. They were in the wrong. I don't know. But we know this. The next group are in big trouble because he specifically says to the wicked, verse 16, to the wicked, God says this. So now uh, we take a look that... Um, uh, at these people, what characterizes them or what summary term might we use for them? I think it's obvious that there is hypocrisy here. Um, one person says they are creedal formalist. In other words, they can say the creed, but they. For, uh, this, this author goes and defines his own terms. He says he defines them as those who say the right things in the right places in the right way at the right time, but the truth is that they hate divine truth. That's verses 16 and 17. You see it right there. He, God says, what do you mean taking my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. And what do you do with my words? But you take that book and throw it behind your back. Y'all stay with me. I know this is difficult, severe language and such, but we're going to end on a great note. Uh, he specifically mentions three of the Ten Commandments in verses 18 and 19 and 20. You see that there. Um, a thief breaking the Eighth Commandment, but oh, you're, you're pleased with that person. Oh, by the way, the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adulter, uh, adultery, and yet you're, you're keeping company with them. And then the issue of the Ninth Commandment of slander and speech. And so we see that there. Uh, the culminating critique is really verse 21. This is just a, a staggering statement. He says, "You, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Don't ever do that. Don't ever think God is some type of big man or something of that nature. Don't ever go this direction. Uh, one person uh, again, Boyce makes the comment, these people have forgotten that God is a moral God. Uh, hypocrisy finds encouragement in impunity. God's silence is an emphatic way of expressing his patient tolerance of evil, his long-suffering. What is long-suffering meant to do but to lead to repentance? It, his silence means he is holding back the just righteous indignation to smite, to, to destroy. But as is so often the case, isn't it? It is abused. So often that is true. Uh, when men turn away from God's self-revelation, as they do by transgression, and one of the most fatal is hypocrisy like this. They cannot but make a God after their own image. Is that not what sinners do? We're prone to invent God in our own image so that we don't have to deal with our sins. How often have we heard about the man upstairs or, well, my God is not like that. 
my God would not do that. You are simply inventing your own God, and I can promise you it's not the God of the Scriptures. So we come to the closing arguments. Closing summary, 22 and 23. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Uh, now, one of the interesting things here is he repeats what he's looking for. Sounds very similar to what we read under the first category of person, verses 14 and 15. Here's, here's, here's what he's looking for. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. That's exactly what was said in 14 and 15. To one who here's, orders his way rightly. That's like performing your vows of verse 14. But in this psalm of 23 verses where it has been... I, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to picture this kind of scene uh, in some way. The only thing that comes close to it in my own personal history is there was a person when I was pastoring in, in Carbondale, Illinois. This guy worked for the prison as a guard and did something really bad. It was a federal prison, and he got in trouble and went to, uh, had to go to court, ended up going to prison himself. But by being a federal case, we went to, it was something like the 11th district of the federal judicial, and the courtroom was every bit as big as this, and the judge's desk was every bit as high as this, and the big round circular thing, federal district court of the United States of America, and the man, the, the federal marshals come out, and Whatever, hear ye, hear ye, and and the judge comes in and he mounts up behind the desk uh, with his black robes and the American flags, and I was there innocent and I was scared. Uh, when you when you sense something like that, uh, and so God is not only uh, uh, God will deal. With sin, this is. There are some people that do not like his king, and he becomes judge. But I want. I said all that. All of this psalm has just this awesomeness. But look at the very last three words. I will show to this person the salvation of God. The whole psalm is basically a call for you today to repent. This God who comes with fire and, and strength irresistible, who has every right to judge, he says, today is a day to reaffirm your love for me, to express your sincere faith in me, he will be our God. He will be our Father. And we will be His people. And so I hope you hear that. I hope you hear now good news from this. That, uh, and I hope, but I do hope you hear the warning. Do not 
do not toy with God and his, his religion. And I'm thinking particularly, I'm glad to see some of the younger folk here. You've got your life to live in front of you. Do not toy with these things. But he is a, he is a great God and a king and a judge. And he is savior to those who will sincerely express their faith in him and their thanksgiving in him. Let's um, close our service by singing. It's... Um,